Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is the Vienna Boys Choir. The choir is made up of sopranos and altos aged 9 to 14, founded more than 500 years ago. It is one of the best-known boys' choirs in the world. The group is also notable for embracing singers who are going through puberty, a time when many boys quit singing because they have so little control over their changing voices and are subject to singing notes that don't quite fit. Now the Vienna Boys Choir has organized a team of researchers to equip choral teachers with the information and skills they need to keep adolescent boys actively involved in singing. Georgia State University music professor Patrick Freer is part of that team and joins me now in the studio. Hello, Patrick. Good morning. So did you grow up singing? Uh, Well, for a time. uh, I was an active singer in a rural part of western New York where I grew up, uh, sang every time there was music class, and then went away to summer camp one year, came back. My voice was doing something unusual. My teacher asked me to stand in the back row of the choir and mouth the words Mm. since I couldn't sing anymore. I'm five feet tall. Standing in the back row was not an option, nor was mouthing the words. My parents did a good thing. They took me to piano lessons, which kept me in music. And then uh, it was many years later that I became interested in what had happened and what we can possibly do about it to assist teachers. So you quit singing. I did. That must have been a big loss. It was because that was what I was good at, and I wasn't good at anything that involved other kids like sports or whatever at the time. So I didn't have a social group. And and the research shows no matter where you are in the world, boys join uh, activities for as much for the social activity as for anything else. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not just a loss of a personal hobby or, or passion. It's a loss of a whole group. It is too, and and uh, my my uh, initial entree to teaching when I uh, in a first year teacher I was a um, high school teacher with a very large uh, high school population and a very small choir, so I decided to tackle that by starting a community choir, and uh, the first people who came were senior citizen women. Well, okay, that's fine. Uh, and after a while, I realized that accompanying them were their husbands mm-hmm. who sat in the back row and didn't sing. And one day, I decided to ask why, and every single one of them had been told as a junior high boy not to sing. Oh. And so we immediately rethought the mission of the choir and brought, uh, did voice lessons and music teaching lessons and all of that sort of thing, and brought them into the choir. And uh, one of my great joys is to know that many of them are singing 
or at least continued to sing when they went to senior citizen homes with their wives, which was important to them. Uh, we need to stop thinking of singing as a one-off kind of experience and something that is acro- that can last across a lifetime in a variety of settings. So we know that boy, vo- boys' voices change when they're going through puberty. Can you explain the mechanics, exactly what is happening? Well, um, it's very detailed, and, and that's kind of the, the um, confusion for teachers is how much detail do we need to know? And, and I think the answer is enough to be able to work with the voice. So you can certainly go into the anatomy and physiology, but basically uh, there are six stages of the boys changing voice. Uh, research shows that all boys go through them, and as those stages progress, um, as influenced by hormones and all of that sort of thing, uh, the voice gradually lowers and then gains some different characteristics, such as uh, the high voice notes, which initially were there as a boy, young boy, uh, come back about halfway through as this falsetto thing uh, that, that is the high voice that uh, adult men have. Uh, but the reason it's called falsetto is because it feels like you're doing absolutely nothing. So the boys feel like they sometimes can't trust it if they don't have a teacher who knows the process. And more importantly, uh, teaches the boys about the process so that they can follow it after after all, it is their voice. And uh, that's where science can help us. Yeah, I want to talk about that process. But you are now a university professor. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you taught middle school and high school. Let's listen to a performance that you conducted. This is a male middle school choir. we hear a wide range of voices there. How, how challenging was it to keep these older, a little bit lower voiced male students involved? It comes down to the choice of repertoire. Uh, sometimes teachers are afraid to choose repertoire that accommodates all of the boys' uh, stages of voice change because, A, it's going to have more parts. What, was that like a South African piece or that something? That was, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and the... Um, and then the repertoire, uh, sometimes we won't have z- have as many boys on different voice parts, depending on where they are in change. So it, it, it we have to sometimes adjust uh, to the boys rather than choose the repertoire and have that sound inside our head of what we, mm-hmm. what we want it to be. We have to think of what's the experience like for the kid. Mm-hmm. And then does the piece of music allow for the boy to change parts as his voice changes, even though we're using the same piece of music? Uh-huh. Because we think of the tr- Traditional boys' choir is this almost mm-hmm, angelic, mm-hmm. you know, young, uh, um, innocent, for lack of a better word, I think is part of the, the way that people think about their repertoire. So, as you said, you know, that you have some challenges to keep the boys involved. But, but how challenging was it for you as a teacher to incorporate these changing voices of, well, I, of kids who did continue singing. Well, I'd like to back up to something you just mentioned, which was this conception of what a boy singer is. Uh, and we don't only have that conception. That conception is conveyed to the boys. So when we have, say, a third-grade boy or so who has a wonderful soprano voice, and we say, your voice is wonderful, you have a wonderful voice, 
what we're doing is we're uh, uniting the voice with the boy rather than saying what the boy can do with that instrument and that the that those skills will remain so uh there what i'm finding is i now travel the world and talk with boys about the voice change to find out what they've experienced there's a profound sense of loss for many of these boys who were built up as young boys sopranos with no guidance as to what the transferability of those skills would be later yeah, and I wonder if there's also this association with growing up is bad, right? Growing mm-hmm. into a male, uh, you know, a man is is negative. Yeah, we often think that boys want, uniformly, want to be, quote-unquote, men. Uh, and that is not necessarily true when you talk to middle school boys. I think we have that conception as older people looking backward, but... I don't get always get that sense from the younger boys. Mm-hmm. So it's more um, multifaceted than I think we give it credit for. So how about your colleagues? What kind of things did you hear in professional circles about why boys stop singing? Well, when I started, uh, it was boys stop singing because they don't like chorus, they don't like re- they don't like school music, they don't like to sing. Well, m- my interviews I've now done interviews with boys in about twenty different countries uniformly says that's not true. Boys do like to sing. The problem is that they don't like how they're required to sing in choir sometimes, um, and they it's not even so much that they don't like the repertoire; they recognize that the repertoire is what it is and has to accommodate different voices. Um, what they do want to learn is skills. They do want to learn vocal technique. And uh, that when they withdraw from singing, they often will go to other activities that take advantage of the boy's growing body and, and uh, new capabilities, and that very often is athletics. Mm-hmm. And so there's the misconception that boys uh, drop out of choir to go to athletics because they like sports better. What they tell me is they like the instruction better because coaches give specific instruction about how to get better, what to do, what to practice, and tomorrow we'll come back and I'm going to give you feedback on that. Yeah. And we need more of that That's in singing. That's what they want. They yep. want that kind of interaction. And I think there's also this association that singing is feminine or unmanly. Uh, boys don't say that. What they do say is that it is the style of teaching that uh, potentially is off-putting, uh, and that uh, over time, if remember, boys only know what they know, and they only know in their community, in their school, so it really is up to the teacher. That's another thing that the research is showing, that, that an individual teacher can only control or have influence on what that individual teacher can have influence on. And so it's important to create that worldview in the situation that you're in. Uh, And um, we can't, teachers will often say, oh, uh, boys think, say, singing is feminine or whatever. a, that whether you think that's a bad thing or not, um, we can't change the world. What we can change is our school, our situation. Patrick Freer is with us. He's a Georgia State University music professor. He's been working with boys' choirs around the world as a part of a team of academics and researchers to try and help boys continue singing even after their voices change. But let's talk more about uh, around the world. You Last year you worked, last fall rather, you worked with the Vienna Boys Choir in Austria. This year you've been to Madrid, Ecuador, Sweden, around the U.S. So how about the differences in cultural attitudes observed between these respects? countries and their attitudes towards changing male voices? Yeah, I get that question all the time. And in fact, that was my question when this all started a few years ago. Um, 
I would say there's not as much difference as you might think. The differences tend to be very specific. For instance, in Greece, uh, where there is not music in public schools the way we have it here, uh, there will be music schools where music is a big portion of the day along with the other uh, academics. In those um, situations, there's the boys will uniformly say, oh, we don't like choir, we don't, you know, whatever. And then... <laughs> But they all sing, and they sing in this thing called Byzantine Choir, which is, you know, there's not the separation of church and state that there is here. But so Byzantine Choir is all melody and a drone, which is one or two notes, sung by a man, uh, led by a man, always loud, boisterous singing. So they don't have to read music. So it's a they don't view that as being wh- how we stereotypically view choral singing. Um, you know, in, in Europe, there's an organization of uh, choral directors called Europa Cantat, and they're actually considering changing their name bec- away from this formalized style to group singing in any format, which could include what we're talking about here, could include other things as well, because there's now this sense that people sing together as groups for a variety of reasons, only one of which might be the concert performance with which we're most familiar when you were in Austria, you did work with Gerald Wirth, if I'm saying his name, Wirth, Wirth mm-hmm. the conductor of the Vienna Boys Choir, very much responsible for the choir's inclusive approach. What makes his method so successful? Is it technique? Is it uh, how they think about it? Is it sort of the psychology of it? I think it's all of those, and part of this project is to perhaps codify a little bit of that. Uh uh, but it, it comes back to this philosophy of who's more important, the repertoire or what is more important, the repertoire or the singers. And he's talked about changing his philosophy away from the choir exists to perform repertoire toward repertoire uh, exists to serve singers. I experienced this when I was a college student at Westminster Choir College in Princeton, New Jersey, way back when. And at the time, the American Boy Choir was just down the street. And while I was a student, the American Boy Choir director uh, changed his philosophy. So no longer would boys have to leave upon voice change. Instead, they would uh, leave when they uh, turned age 14. So that the choir had to change with the boys rather than the boys having to leave when their voice started to change. And that was a big uh, uh, philosophy uh, advance, I would say. Well, let's listen to a clip of the Vienna Boys Choir. Here they are singing Pharrell's Happy. Mm So clearly the repertoire has changed. But are there, I mean, historically, higher voices considered so much more valuable than lower. The Vienna Boys Choir, this stalwart organization that, that presented this tradition over and over again. So are there traditionalists who feel like, why are you doing Pharrell songs? Uh, well, that's not all they do. Of course. Uh, and certainly. Uh, I, I think there are some, but I would say that perhaps those traditionalists are a little bit limited in what they're talking about. Remember, we're talking here about music education for all boys uh, and singing for all boys, and that there will be uh, different kinds of boys with different kinds of interests and abilities that call for different kinds of musical experiences, just like in sports. 
you, you have your elite teams that represent the school, but that's just a fraction of the number of boys and girls in that school. Uh, but that doesn't mean that no one else has anything to do with being physical or athletic. It's just that that team only has 12 players. Well, you are working with a range of choirs, you know, from the ultra prestigious mm-hmm. to those that are passion-driven in small schools across the U.S. But with budget cuts, many schools' art programs have disappeared. Can you talk about some of the other challenges music teachers face in today's education landscape? I think uh, the budget is one, but singing is a good thing because it requires dare I say, less money than, say, if you were outfitting a band or an orchestra where you have to uh, purchase and maintain instruments. Uh, there, there's that. There's uh, the new focus or awareness of transgender singers uh, and transgender students in general, which then is a new area of focus for many teachers. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, but I do think that the world has changed in the sense that there's so much communication available to everyone uh, that uh, we no longer have the isolation that we used to have. I I used to hear that from teachers early on in my career that they just felt like no one cared, no one knew what they did, and uh, they didn't have resources. Uh, That's changed Mm. in the U.S. It's not true in most other countries. Uh, We are very fortunate in that we have an education industry that supports us with publications and repertoire and materials and all of that. That's not the case elsewhere. Well, uh, I'm so such a pleasure speaking with you. So interesting. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Georgia State University professor Patrick Freer. Now just ahead, school is out and pools and beaches are open for the summer. We're going to hear from a nonprofit leader who wants everyone to swim safely. And she wants those safe swim tips to reach all kids. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought.